0: Uh, so where this paper comes from was, I suppose, when I wrote my book, uh, I, I went down a very long rabbit hole about the Irish uh, Senate and its fascinating personal stories of the individuals and their contribution to the foundation of the state and individuals who, uh, in my view, have never really been acknowledged and their contribution has never been acknowledged. And, uh, and then subsequently I wrote a chapter with uh, a book by um, a former Disciple of the Minute History Department here, Uh, Mel Farrell was uh, one of the co-authors, and um, Kira Meehan, and I wrote a chapter for them on the First Irish Senate, and then subsequently I was appointed to the Shannon Working Group on Reform by the Taoiseach, a report uh, that was subsequently ignored. Um, So I'm here today to talk about why the First Senate is so special and what makes it um, so deserving of, of further scholarship. Uh, So essentially what I'm arguing here today is that the Senate of 1922 to 1928 was a rare case of a non-partisan chamber in a bicameral system which effectively occupied the role of uh, traditionally assigned to an opposition party within a unicameral parliamentary system. So in many respects what the first Senate between 1922 and 1928 was, was a, a de facto opposition party. And in those early years, uh, it was a model second chamber. And the reasons for this, uh, a typical role that the first Senate uh, uh, was, was quite unusual. First, there's three reasons. First, the policy of ab- abstentionism adopted by the anti-treaty parliamentarians and a weak Labour Party provided little resistance to government policy in the doll. That resistance came from the first Senate. Secondly, and of direct relevance to the subject matter of, and the theme of this um, conference, the quality of the Senate's membership, uh, the, the rules underpinning its establishment, and the way in which the senators exercised those rules may have enabled it to be, become particularly persuasive in amending legislation. And the willingness of the new government to keep those with unionist sympathies within the fold of the state building exercise was quite important. And the third reason... That makes the Senate quite unusual is that the formation of the Senate coincided with the dist- distraction of the Civil War, uh, intellectual or institutional flux and political instability. So into that breach stepped this second chamber. And my paper is broken into three parts. So I'm going to examine the mechanics of the Senate's operation. Uh, then I'm going to argue that the process of election politicised the non-partisan legislator and ultimately undermined its independence. So initially it was quite non-partisan. Uh, the Senate, uh, unusually, there was no party lines, and then later on the party lines began to develop, which undermined its, its influence and impact. And the second part of the paper, it looks at the context of the challenging circumstances of the early years. And uh, this, I think, is is quite magnificent of the courage of the senators, particularly those from the unionist background. So consideration is given to why the Senate came to exert the influence it did by exploring the practical realities of parliamentary representation in the new state. And finally, the contribution of the Senate, is analysed with particular reference to its involvement in the wholesale structural judicial reform, which remains the basis for the judicial system today through the Courts of Justice Act 1924. So, I am going to begin by looking at the election system, which was magnificent. Uh, I am going to look at three elections: 1922, my absolute favourite; favourite 1925. Um, never in our Irish parliamentary or electoral history has there ever been an election like the 1925 Senate election and then finally the 1928 Senate election. So the Senate, as many of you will know, was established under Article 12 of the 1922 Free State Constitution. The complexity of the selection, election, and the convoluted layers of differing terms of office all all served to create distance between the upper house and public opinion. So it never really uh, had ownership of public opinion. And these institutional roles not only overshadowed the achievements of the Senate, uh, but also contributed to its eventual demise. And the unique, and I stress the word unique, uh, experimental methods of electing the Irish Senate have long fascinated those obsessed with election methods. So, this Byzantine electoral process will prove to have the opposite effect to what its framers intended the politicisation of an institution characterised initially by a large degree of political independence. So, <clears throat> I'm going to go through the three elections uh, and how those elections, in essence, undermined the Senate uh, and its authority. So, the, the 1922 uh, election or process of nominating the Senate, the criteria for selecting its 60 members was very idealistic in tone, if not rather impractical. Article 30 of the Irish Free State Constitution prescribed that citizens must, quote, have done honour to the nation by reason of useful service or that because of special qualifications or attainments they represent important aspects of this nation's life. So that was the criteria of how someone should be appointed to the Senate. Darrell Figgis, the chair of the 1922 Constitutional Committee, envisaged a Senate occupied by what he termed as a senatorial person who would find his way to the councils of the nation, bringing with him an unanswerable authority. And Figgis believed that this could only be achieved through a system of election on a national basis, which was in contrast to the Dáil, whose election by constituency would allow for representation of local interests. This senatorial, if not presidential, reverence was evident by the differing age criteria required for eligible candidates to stand in both houses of parliament so the senate was from the very off was seen as something very very different uh, and uh, their servants were to be of of national prominence so senators had to be 35 years of age to be eligible to stand for uh, election where the the threshold for TDs was not 21 so similar how we see the, the presidential election today. So Irish citizens aged 30 or more were entitled to vote in the Senate elections, while the age for the male electorate for Dáil elections was 18, uh, though women were still uh, required to uh, be over 30 years of age. So the inaugural 1922 Senate was constituted by two separate nomination procedures – each with an exceptionally narrow franchise. So W. T. Cosgrave, president of the executive, directly appointed thirty individuals. So his nominees numbered sixteen former Southern Unionists, and among them included seven peers, a dower countess, five baronets knight, and knights, uh, and various people of literary background, professional background, and business background. And I'll go through briefly through some of those. So this so half the Senate <laughs> the first one were appointed by W.T. Cosgrave and the other 30 were elected by the public. So this deliberate appointment process to the Senate warranted the consolidation of the Anglo-Irish and Unionist traditions to the Irish Free State. Aside from engineering the political and symbolic reconciliation of the ancient regime with the new Free State, the Upper House had significant purpose of bringing political and administrative expertise into the legislature, which was noticeably absent within the Dáil Uh, membership. And if you think about it, uh, most of the government, if if not all, had never been a a politician before uh, before Ireland got independent. So they had no experience of being a politician. They had no experience of being a minister. They had no experience of legislative drafting. But the senators had, because they were in the the old regime. So they they had the practical uh, expertise of governing uh, and administrative exper- ex- experience. So the other 30 seats were determined from a rather cumbersome election process involving 113 public nominations by 128 members of Dahlair. Uh, so in all, 72 candidates received no votes whatsoever in any of the 35 counts necessary before the final result was attained. And if you think that's bad wait till we get to the 1925 election. Uh, I'm really building up 1925. So with a quota of just two and a half votes, um, two preferences really were sufficient for an individual to become a senator in that first uh, 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 election in 1922. And the term of office depended on a rather peculiar system determined by the method of election. So of the 30 senators nominated by Cosgrave, half were randomly selected by lot to serve in office for 12 years, while the other 15 were randomly selected by lot to serve six years. So the electoral law stipulated that an election every three years would replace 15 of the elected senators with the other 15 a nine-year term. So the makeup of the first Senate, uh, 36 Catholics, 20 Protestants, uh, three Quakers, and one member of the Jewish faith were represented. And of those, 11 had served in the British Army, 13 were educated uh, at Sandhurst, Oxford or Cambridge. So quite a diverse bunch of individuals in the first Senate. So the 1925 Senate election was the first and only popular election where the dual process of candidate selection and public election was tested. It was absolutely farcical. The list of candidates for the public election was filtered after two separate elections within the Dole and Senate. So, as the, uh, the Catholic press at the time sagely noted, never before was the task of selecting 19 members out of 17 candidates placed before a constituency of more than one million people. And judging by the result, we can safely add, never again. It took 10 days for the first candidate, Major General Hickey, representing ex servicemen interests, to reach the quota on the 45th count. <laughs> So the Senate election eventually concluded after a gruelling 24 days of counting with just nine reaching the quota. The ballot paper measured 22 by 16 inches. The election result sheet itself measured 10 feet by more than 5 feet. So disinterest, (coughs) bewilderment at the list of candidates and continuing boycott by the anti-treatyites combined to record a dismal 23% turnout after all the... That counting. So that compared rather unfavourably with the general election turnouts in August 1923 of 61% and 68% in the June 1927 election. So 23% turnout was rather low in, in comparison. So, in that first test of popular support, less than a quarter of those eligible to vote participated, serving to reinforce the perception that the Senate's relevance was contained within a rather narrow constituency. So, the public never really claimed ownership of the Senate. So the top three winners in the 1925 Senate election were Thomas Toll, John O'Farrell, and Cornelius Kennedy. And they owed their support to local appeal, party loyalty, and organized interests, which was actually the absolute antithesis of what Daryl Figgis had envisaged. Um, and interestingly, I think two of those candidates I've just named were from the local publican uh, interests, uh, and they sought to uh, stop the, was it the Good Friday ban or the Sunday ban of, of drinking. Uh, so, the, so the alcohol lobby already was well formed mm-hmm. in the early 1920s. So well-known national figures failed to be elected, so in, in, in figures earned just 512 votes in the whole country, and just 82, in fact, from his own Dáil constituency. And he died by suicide a few weeks after the election. So the list of failed candidates was a prestigious one, and the founder of the Gaelic League and first Irish president of Ireland, Douglas Hyde, and celebrated founder of the Irish literary revival, Lady Gregory, were both failed candidates. Uh, So the selection process had the effect of nominating, not with regard to merit or ability, but to uh, party demands. So the organized interests of publicans and ex-servicemen were particularly successful within the ranks of elected uh, independents. So it was the two, uh, as I said, it was the Senate Amendments on the Intoxicating Liquor General Bill of 1924, which were responsible for prohibiting the sale of alcohol on St. Patrick's Day, which was the reason why uh, the alcohol lobby was so organized. So, despite the attempts of Cummina Gwail to present the 1925 election as nonpartisan, the very process of electioneering and political competition had introduced a creeping politicisation. And as a contemporary observer prospectively put it, after a few more such elections, the Senate would become a feeble echo of the doll. Um, we, we've heard that many times since. So, finally, the 1928 election did little to deter this perception that the Senate was now more than an echo of the Doll. The Senate, as a rare case of a non-partisan legislative assembly, was eroded following the entry of Fianna Fáil into legislative politics in 1927. So the introduction of a series of constitutional amendments in 1928 strengthened party control over the method of election. So in his last contribution as a senator, a disillusioned Yates made the observation that, quote, it was more desirable and more important to have able men in this House than to get representative men into this House, unquote. So after the 1928 election, uh, political parties dominated and political affiliation became a good predictor of individual voting behaviour. And indeed, 11 of the 19 Senate vacancies were returned in that election to politically affiliated senators. Uh, so, any assessment of the legislative, political, and administrative achievements of the Senate must correspond, uh, uh, must appreciate the context in which it operated. This is the second part of the paper. So, the establishment of the upper house coincided with a consorted attack on its very existence. Uh, and this is what I referred to earlier as the, the courage and bravery of those senators. There was a campaign against the Senate members through intimidation, kidnapping, uh, attempts on their lives and the destruction of their houses. So of the 60 senators, uh, uh, between November 1922 and February 1923, so a period of, what, four or five months, the Civil War was at its highest, 37 of the 60 senators had their homes burnt to the ground. Kidnapping was a regular occurrence. So the Senate appointment of uh, Dr. Alden Sinjin-Gogarty a uh, long-standing member, Sinn Fein, and the eminent surger- surgery surgeon uh, uh, was uh, uh, has been um, uh, colourfully written about by um, his name escapes me now. Come to me in a moment. Um, but he was he was kidnapped in rather dramatic circumstances, uh, and his Connemara residence in Renvil was fire fire And he said, memories nothing left now but memories, nothing left but a charred oak beam quenched in the well beneath the house, and ten tall chimneys stand bare on Europe's extreme edge, he wrote. So as a a response to this challenging period, Alice Stoffer Green, a senator and a a historian, commissioned the design of a rote metal case, as she put it, a petrol memorial to the foundation of this body, and a witness in later times of its increasing service to the country. So and in the casket, there was a vellum roll uh, with the signature of every Senate who served in the 1922 uh, uh, election. So the vellum, or the, uh, served in the 1922 Senate, the vellum roll was accompanied by a written message which offered a précis of its recent history. Uh, and I think this is particularly relevant as we've come to commemorate events in the next few years. And in that vellum roll, the message is whether we are of an ancient Irish descent or of later Irish birth, we are united in one people, we are bound by one lofty obligation to complete the building of our common nation. So the casket was played on the Cahirlox desk immediately prior to every session of the Senate uh, from 1924 until its final final sitting in 1936. Uh, So this acute awareness of marrying the old and the new regimes together was an underlining theme of the Upper House. Um, So... Uh, I, I found the the, the the role had had been, um, uh, I suppose, just in a archive in the the um, Royal Irish Academy, and had maybe been a little bit forgotten about. And I did a interview with uh, Declan Costello and Garth Strode on their fathers' contribution to the foundation of the state, and I brought them in to see the the role and to see the names. And, uh, and I brought in uh, Liam Cosgrave to, to see it. His father had appointed half <coughs> of the Senate. And what's beautiful about the vellum role is that even the way this, the people, how, how the senators signed their name, you can tell an aspect of their character from it. I, I don't know what psychology there is that allows me to assume that, but you, know, you can see the... Um, all the earls, for example, or the lords, just you know, it was wicklow. It was, they, they they didn't have to. Uh, uh, they dispensed with their their first name. Um, but it was particularly uh, beautiful, I think, to see in that vellum roll that, you know the names of W. B. Yeats uh, and beside his good friends uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty. Um, but uh, also it gives you a sense that that they existed and that they that they were real. And it's uh, uh, it's in Gaelic script and it can be seen in in the uh, Royal Irish Academy. Um, So the operation of the the Senate, Um, W.T. Cosgrave's government relied enormously on the Senate. Most of the new ministers were young men with little experience of the world or knowledge of public affairs. So at 55, Owen McNeill, for instance, was the oldest member of the government, followed by Cosgrave, who was 42, The rest of the people in government were men in their 20s and 30s. So no member had ever served in Parliament, never mind at ministerial level. Just two of the 128 Parliamentarians elected in 1922, Alfred Byrne and Laurence Ginnell, had actual experience of parliamentary life Um, So that figure after the 1923 election, just five out of the 153 TDs had previous parliamentary expertise. So you can see how much they would have uh, relied on the expertise, and I'll go through exactly how much they relied on the expertise of that first Senate. So the first years of the Free State were democratically fragile. Uh, as uh, John Reagan has uh, outlined, the pro-treaty party were diminished by debt, assassination, expulsion, resignation, electoral defeat and absorption into the army. So of the four, 57 TDs elected on the pro-treaty panel in the 1922 election, just 23 remained by th- the end of 1925. So senators had the parliamentary experience and the intimate understanding of policy and draftmen, particularly draftmanship, uh, skills that the ministers simply did not So the last Count Corlea of the first Senate was James Douglas, a Quaker. And he was somebody who has, I think, not not really been given the due recognition of uh, his contribution to the drafting of many of the the first laws of the Irish state. So although Douglas was from a business background and without any formal legal training, he was recognised as an authority on constitutional law. So he assumed the technical role of drafting standing orders and taking charge of private bills for both the Dáil and the Senate because no-one in Ireland knew very much about it, uh, as Anthony Gagan put it in, a, in the abstract of, the, of uh, uh, his memoirs, of Douglas's memoirs. So Douglas's improvised legal skills were in high demand given the notable absence of lawyers in the early free state, and as one myself, there can never be enough uh, lawyers. Uh, so the Senate fulfilled Manster's contention that the task of providing the machinery of administration in a modern state is as important as the structure of the Constitution itself. So initially uh, it was that, uh, the Senate was preoccupied by the technicalities necessary of being a legislator. So this workmanlike attitude was best expressed in the words of Connell Moore on the first day of the Senate's existence. We must have some standing orders to carry us. So the early years were characterised by numerous committees and standing orders, procedures and private bills. So kind of the nut and, and grit of, of setting up a parliament, of setting up a, a legislative, uh, functioning legislative system, that isn't very sexy at all, but really important uh, that, that it's done. So the infrastructure of a functioning parliament was largely absent, so much so that Plunkett, a senator uh, travelled to Wisconsin in December 1922 in order to inquire into the character, scope and working of the legislator reference library, which then served as a template for the Rochtes library that we have today. Uh, So the picturesque senators, as they were referred to, had a reputation of influence which was much greater than their actual legislative powers. So policy discussion was facilitated in a non-party atmosphere without the distraction of sharp party lines, initially in the early years. So according to Douglas, Senators pledged to support the government on all issues affecting the maintenance of the treaty, but not in matters relating to internal politics or affairs. So organized politics did not exist really in the early Senate, uh, though there was six members of the minority Labour Party did vote as a distinct bloc. So analysis of two scholars, Danish scholars, I hope I pronounced their names right, Sinclair and Holland, of the 395 roll-call votes by the 113 different members of the Senate between 1922 and 1936, found that for the most part there was no distinct party behaviour. It was evident in the first six years. There was no patterns of block voting were recorded among unionists, non-unionists, or farmers. Uh, so I, I have about five minutes left, and I'm going to go very quickly through the contribution of the Senate. Um, So the Senate had the power to suggest amendments and delay legislation up to 270 days, but could not veto bills. Um, So uh, there was uh, was three contributions of the Senate. I might get through them all today uh, because of time. Uh, Women, uh, their legislation, and uh, in particular in the whole area of justice. So um, in terms of uh, women... Uh, Eileen Costello and Jenny Wise Power, who was president of Common Mon uh, which was an organization uh, for Republican women set up in 1913, were successful in convincing their Senate colleagues that the provision for competitive examinations for civil service positions discriminated against women because it was confined, confined to those qualified in respect of sex, age, health, character, knowledge, and ability. So uh, the delay, however, had no effect, and the legislation was passed a year later. It was met with no opposition in the Dáil. Costello and Wise Power had limited success in their campaign to thwart the efforts of Kevin O'Higgins to exclude women from serving on juries on the grounds that, as he put it, the women juror has not been an outstanding success. So uh, the interventions by uh, the, the, these two female senators Although not uh, 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 fully impactful, full unlike some of the other amendments which I'll go through briefly, were characteristic of a Senate which was prepared to oppose government. In this case, over feminist issues. Unlike their female counterparts in the Dáil, there was more women in the Senate than there were, there were in the Dáil. Even though there was more TDs. Um, so, of the two. Uh, sorry. So, and finally, I just go through some of the legislative uh, achievements. Um, The true uh, extent of the Senate's contribution to the development of the state is best illustrated in uh, uh, an examination of some of the amendments that they made to primary legislation between 1922 and 1928. Um, A remarkable 238 bills, other than money bills, came before the Senate in this period. And these included laws that went to the very heart of the new infrastructure of the Irish Free State, So, for example, this was a period when laws like the Electoral Act 1923, the Guard Shukana Act 1924, the Ministries Secretaries Act 1924, the Courts and Justice Act 1924, the Local Government Act 1925 were passed. And this is the, if I was to leave you with one figure today about the impact of the Senate, this would be it. Uh, The Senate uh, Senate uh, substantially amended 93 bills before they came uh, law, Of the 954 amendments made to primary legislation, the Dáil agreed to 910. So of the 954 amendments that the Senate suggested to the Dáil about those pieces of legislation, which were not ordinary pieces of legislation, which still are the architecture of the Irish state today, the Dáil more or less wholesalely accepted 910 of those amendments. So in all, the Dáil accepted about 98% of all the Senate amendments. So unlike its successor, the Dáil had the right to initiate a legislation, and 30 private bills and provisional order confirmation bills subsequently became legislation. Uh, so uh, the Senate's record and money bills, which laid out uh, anything connected uh, with taxation or public finances were more contentious so unlike ordinary bills the Senate could only delay a money bill for 21 days so when all 34 of its recommendations were accepted by the Dáil and 21 uh, rejected uh, so um, uh, I have more uh, uh, detailed information about uh, some of the characters like Lord Lanivie who's the first Cahiro, and, um, and uh, more information about uh, exactly how they amended aspects of the Courts of Justice Act uh, and and faced down Kevin O'Higgins, faced down uh, Cosgrave and initiated a media campaign with the Irish Times to bring about some of their uh, legislative initiatives. Uh, But uh, I don't want to trespass too much on uh, Elaine's time. So thanks very much.